Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, a training partner that demystifies fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. Owen Fitzgerald and I are back with another Money Talk segment this week. Will we trip through the wires of Starling Bank's latest fundraise? Investing in Roblox, direct listing. Walmart Super App versus the Bank of Walmart. The Square and Tidal Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z tie-up. And national startup accelerators, international startup accelerators, and pre-accelerators. All right here on this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Hey, pal. How's it going? Good. And you? I'm good. I'm good. Good day trading today. We'll talk about that later on. But it's not day trading if you just buy and don't sell, right? That's true. As long as it doesn't happen in one day, then it's not day trading. Exactly. (laughs) Does the the next day count? It's it's just a buy. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We got so much to go through tonight. I'm thinking as I'm going through a few of these stories this morning and this afternoon that you can really go down a rabbit hole here with some of these stories. Yeah. And it's the more you're in this and the more you know about the different players, you start making these associations, you start seeing these patterns and saying, wait a second, if you did this, this, that, and the other thing, anywho, it's all good stuff. Do you want to dig right into it? Go for it. Okay. First story we're looking at tonight is Starling, our good friends at Starling Bank. They raised 272 million pounds at a 1.3 billion pound valuation that was announced just a couple of days ago. And we've got a story where a number of these things were covered by our friends at Sifted. Recommend that people check that out. But Owen, oh, Sifted put up their paywall. Did you see that? No, I, I did see that. That's really annoying. No, I, I understand. Obviously, I'm not I'm not giving out about their, their uh, trying to earn a living and everything. It's really annoying for me who doesn't want to pay. Oh, I know. I, I shut down my <laughs> FT subscription because Sifted went live, right? Yeah. And now what I ended up paying for the FT subscription annually, I'll have to then now pay for Sifted. But what are you going to do? Anyway, the Series D round was led by Fidelity Management Research, or FMR, out of Boston, where I started my career back in the 90s, alongside the Qatar Investment Authority. Got a good friend from Bermuda who is from Qatar. I'm sure he knows some of the folks there. Pension manager RPMI Railpen and the investment firm Millennium Management, who I did a little project with a few years ago called Bond Clearing, which I won't get into. It was terribly boring and terribly insane at the same time. One of the other things I noted, the investor, one of the big investors from the early days, Harry McPike, he cashed out or cashed out a portion. Did you read Ann Bowden's book, Banking on It? No, I haven't read the book yet. No. Okay. Okay. Anyway, in the book, Banking on It, that Ann Bowden wrote that I just finished reading recently, she talks about her initial investor, Harry McPike. He bankrolled Starling in the early days with up to 48 million pounds that he invested in three tranches for 67% of the equity. That's a big number, right? Harry McPike was the founder of the quantitative trading firm Quantrez. He lives on board his 92-foot yacht in Nassau in the Bahamas off a little place called Paradise Island. Yeah, so he's pretty it's, he's pretty wealthy. Yeah, he was a strange person involved in the whole thing, wasn't he? Because like you can understand everyone else's involvement on their background. He just seemed to be to bring the money, a lot of money. It does. It, it, Harry was a needle in the haystack type investor, right? I mean, I think Anne was at at a point in time where it looked like it was pretty dire, and the funding was absolutely critical. And through an introduction, through an old associate, she got the entry point to Harry. She went to go see him in the Bahamas. Don't want to ruin the story for anybody, right? And But from where it is right now, he still owns 40% of the company, okay? 
So Anne is now down below 25% of the equity since 2019. And she's probably down to 15% or less after the last two rounds. But from reading the book, though, she's no Gordon Gecko, right? Her passion was never about the massive accumulation of wealth. So, and about the I win, you lose type of thing, you know, just different kind of individual. She was asked in the article about the investment from the UK pension fund, RailPen, on whether it was risky for them to invest in Starling. And Anne said, it's absolutely fantastic. Pension funds invest in large, stable companies. Starling is bigger now and profitable. They're not VCs. These are investors that invest in real solid numbers with real solid growth, which is a admirable position to be in right now for and Bowden and Starling Bank. That's a, like it's a really positive piece for them, the pension fund investment. Because even looking at Mon's own Revolut's last rounds, like it's typically always the uh, VCs ponying up again, keeping the fund in the business. Whereas from a from an exit strategy, long term support point of view, the pension fund is potentially a better support there. They're not looking to get turn that money around very quickly. Yep, there's buckets of it, you know, far deeper buckets than with with some of the individual VCs. Yep. And it's reminiscent of Coinbase's either Series D or Series E, where Tiger Global Management, which is a private equity firm, but having a big name like Tiger on a cryptocurrency business was a big win. And also Wellington Asset Management, who is one of the stalwarts from Boston, where Fidelity are from, they came into the Coinbase Series D or Series E. Because it's a big, like you look at you look at that list of investors and you have Fidelity and then you have RailPen as well. That's a very different group of investors with a longer term strategic view on it as opposed to further funding from the VCs. So I'd say it's the fundraising is very positive, but actually the makeup of the fundraisers is even more positive in terms of the long term future of them. Yep. Yep. I really like it. But I mean it's a stage that they're at, you know, they're profitable. Starling book revenues at twelve million pounds in the month of January. And their net income is more than one and a half million pounds. So according to our friend Brian McMahon from Expert Dojo and his eye for early stage startups that have the potential to get to 10 million in monthly recurring revenue, right? And, and her team have done that a few million better. Yeah. So who is the next Starling Bank? If you think it's you, please get in touch. Absolutely. When if it's you, we're talking right now, so just let right. me know. Yeah. Yeah. Blame. So <laughs> if you can get to 10 million in monthly recurring revenue, you're, you're doing well. what's referred to as unicorn material. You justify right? your unicorn status, I think. Exactly. So that is a 1 billion revenue valuation. If you're at 10 million monthly recurring revenue, 120 million ARR, seven to eight X multiples of revenue to get to your valuation for a fintech. And that is conservative. Right, that's what I was going to say. That's pretty reasonable. Like at that, you would think on the face of it, like you'd, we're expecting 12 to 15, if not more for a fintech. So I would have said that's quite conservative. Which- it's very conservative. It's kind of like, Cutting it in half. I was talking to a couple of founders today about take all of your revenue projections and cut them in half, right? And it's going to take twice as long to get to that level. A couple of guys I was talking to today that were were talking about the amount that they would need for funding. And they were both showing me their early stage projections where they were profitable within three months. And I'm like, well, if you're going to be profitable within three months, you don't need funding, right? You don't need VC if you're going to be profitable in three months, right? So, but no, got them going in the right direction. But I, one of the other things with this as well is that the new funding is being put towards launching Starling in Europe and for anticipated M&A, perhaps a peer-to-peer lender to grow its lending book. I know that you were tweeting about that a couple of weeks ago when you were saying, hey, might Ulster Bank have a loan book there that might be interesting? Yeah, it seems that sort of thing you would think makes sense. Obviously, you know, I, I was tweeting that in relation to Revolut, 
maybe it doesn't make sense for them with no background in lending and it's a far different kettle of fish as they say but obviously with starting being more focused on the business side of it you know you could argue there's an opportunity for them to look at loan books peer-to-peer lenders or others who might have a loan book for sale and acquire a decent chunk of customers on that basis obviously the challenge with going across europe is the different regulatory requirements and the different market requirements you know it's not easy a lot of that money will go towards whatever is needed to go into new markets so you know you could see that it may not be enough given that there'll be a period of time before they're starting to build up some profit in new markets. oh yeah but i'm sure if 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 they were letting good old harry you know take a few tens of millions off the table. They had to be in a position because they're a regulated bank now of having ca- capital adequacy and having en- yeah. enough left in the war chest to do what they wanted to do, right? So the one of the articles said there is still no date for the Irish license and had said that they had begun building out the team there. We know that obviously with Elaine DN. Shout out to Elaine. She heads up Starling in Ireland. She's a friend of the show. So, but European expansion, the sites are set on Ireland. Ireland's a small country of 5 million people, but it is the first natural bridge for a UK business with English as its first language to get into Europe, which seems crazy 50 years ago that the UK would need to seems crazy to get into Europe, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But obviously, you know, strategically, and actually I'm thinking back to my comment from a few minutes ago, you know, Getting the license in Ireland covers Europe from a regulatory point of view, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, it reduces the cost of going into some of those markets. You know, so, oh, that's a big thing. Well, you you get it done in Ireland first. And I've talked to a few companies about this. Is that Ireland's got a very unique demographic for a country of five million people, and you've got a good proportion of tech savvy individuals just from all of the different types of multinational businesses that have been here across all different segments of technology over the last 30, 40 years, and what that's created in terms of how people engage with technology in Ireland, right? And being able to have that type of population here in what is, I looked at some numbers recently, we're the sixth wealthiest country in the world in terms of GDP per capita. Because of all the revenue pumped through Ireland by the multinationals, right? It goes back out again. It doesn't go into our pockets. Well, some of it, but anyway, I think there is a very unique demographic. So it makes for a good breeding ground for your European entry point, right? Yeah, yeah. Get it done here. And then you're going to 27 different unique cultures, right? You know, and it, it's that's going to be a harder nut to crack. Anyway, last point on this. While Monzo, Revolut, and N26 have all raised at higher valuations than this $1.2 billion, Starling now outpaces all of them in terms of value per user at £650 per user, right? That's, I, I, I think, out of this entire story, I think that's the one now, after reading the book from Ann Bowden, that she would point to and be the most proud of. Yeah, definitely. Right? It's not the big valuation. It's not the money coming in. I'd say she's proud of the investor profiles that have come in, but the fact that they've been able to pump up the value per user to 650 pounds, it's pretty, yeah, cool. All right, next one. Speaking about pumping up, Roblox, right? Their direct listing went on to New York Stock Exchange today at what was a reference price of $45 per share. That opened up at 64.50. I know because I got in for a small investment, a very small investment, just to kind of undo <laughs> some of my frustrations about the trading options that I have here in Ireland. And I used one of my US accounts, not like 
you know, Gordon Gecko saying to Bud Fox, use the offshore accounts. I'm using a an account that is monitored by the IRS and where all gains are reported by Fidelity to the IRS. So it's all good. Anywho, so they went to direct listing instead of an IPO, like a number of companies before them, Asana, Palantir, Spotify, and Slack. Upcoming from Coinbase, they're going to do one as well. So it's not backed by underwriters as the current shareholders just convert their ownership into stock based on trading prices in private markets, right? I, I don't know what they might have been trading at in the secondary markets before they went live on the New York Stock Exchange today, because we've seen that with some of these others where employee shares or employee share options or derivative of those are trading in secondary markets, right? But opening up at 64.50, bounced up to 70, up to 80, then back settled down around 70, I think, towards the close of the market today. Just seeing them go public, knowing their revenue model, which I think we can get into a little bit, it was kind of mind blowing to me to see this video game that my kids have been playing for the last couple of years. Yeah. Where one of the kids just walked into me and said, Dad, Dad, can you download Roblox for me? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? What is that? He's like, I don't know. One of the one of the guys outside, <laughs> one of the kids outside said, I need to play it. I'm like, all right, here you go. Yeah. That was kind of before we had this control mindset on top of iPads. Yeah. Look, same. You know, I try to limit it, but actually it's one of the few games I don't mind them playing, as long as they're not chatting to whoever random stranger in some part of the world. But actually from a like usability and skills and hand-eye coordination, all that, all that good stuff that you get from gaming being able to build out things and the community side of it. I think they really enjoy it. So I have a lot of time for the kids playing Roblox in particular. But I just think it's a fascinating business and the potential opportunities of it, especially the buying and selling and the e-commerce platform and engine that runs within the game. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And there's loads yeah. of scope for that. Yeah, that was the eye-opening piece for me. And obviously looking at this before pulling the trigger on the investment and getting my head around it a bit more is seeing how Jesus, Simon Taylor said a few weeks ago, everything is fintech right? In his yeah. FinTech Brain Food newsletter. And I'm thinking, is everything crypto here, right? Because Roblox developers can get paid in Robux, right? And it's in-game currency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is used to buy new avatars, used to buy new gear for your avatar, right? And there are now developers that are making a living off this, as you can convert that back into fiat. And how many million people? What were the numbers? The numbers in February, 32 and a half million daily average users. It far out, uh, exceeds Facebook and everything, up from 13, 13, 14 million this time last year. Wow. But again, come back to what you were saying there. It's the ability to build your own game within the world and upgrade your character and then being able to cash out of it. Like this huge opportunity. A good reference point, Fortnite had Travis Scott do his entire concert within the game. He made loads of money out of that by having sponsorship associated with the concert. I think it was Packy McCormick had a really good article that he wrote on it a few months back about uh, what he calls the metaverse, the online universe whereby products will be developed purely online in a gaming setting. And like lots of money is going to be flowing towards that. I'd love to find it and maybe put it in the show notes. But again, it's pointed to that, that actually within these universe of 32 million users every day, the amount of opportunity to build new products or do some really interesting stuff is untapped potential there. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think metaverse is the right word there. It's just a whole new virtual economy yeah. that, and I was saying to someone the other day that the danger of this digital working, right, or remote working is that you don't have to leave your house. 
right? So making sure you get outside every day is a big thing. We always want our kids to go outside every day, right? So the more and more they get hooked on this stuff, but yeah, just take the controller away. It's an interesting one because obviously I laughed when you were saying everything is crypto, but something like Robux, which is the in-game currency, like to me is the prime example of a digital currency, the potential usage. You see Bitcoin obviously starting to become more widely adopted, but actually here's a currency within a game that's being used potentially by 32 million people every day. And it's the potential for that. Like that to me is what digital currency could become. It's a closed loop environment whereby that currency can be used in a hundred different ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's part, one of the big things for me with DeFi, right? Is that you hold ETH, you can stake ETH, you can earn other tokens, you can then do swaps, you can generate yield. And within this whole ecosystem, you can just continue to earn, you continue to invest, you can borrow and without ever converting into fiat and cashing out. But when you do want to cash out, there is the absolute facility to be able to do that. That one of the mind bending things for this was in the CNBC article that talked about it, where they started out the article with Ethan Garonsky was about 10 years old when he discovered Roblox. He dove into its games, mostly to socialize with other kids. Now at age 20, he has his own Roblox game that he works on full-time with his girlfriend, L. The couple met on the app, earned more than $49,000 in the past month from their action game called Bad Business by selling outfits and weapons players can use to make their characters look cooler and perform better, right? Absolutely. You are in an ecosystem where there is a currency that you use to do things with. And then when you want to leave that ecosystem, you take your money with you and you go use it somewhere else. Wonderful. I think we're just going to see in more and more and more of that. And I think the, ugh, wow, yeah, the plug-in of the NFT world, the non-fungible token world, to these links with other types of experiences, I think is going to be a gateway to so much more of this, which is going to be pretty cool to see. Definitely. Way more to come in this space. Definitely way more to come in this space. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech demystifying fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. Pat Fintech enables financial services professionals to transform their capabilities into the digital age with dedicated virtual training programs geared towards those that can develop, deliver, and monitor optimally customized user experiences balanced by appropriate governance, control, and oversight. To learn more about Pat Fintech, go to moneyneversleeps.ie slash fintech. On to the next one. Well, there we go, right? So speaking of everything being fintech, Walmart is proposing or suggesting subtly between the lines or whatever that everything is fintech. And the headline is Walmart's fintech ambition, a super app, not the bank of Walmart. Okay, so back in January, Walmart announced that they were building a super app. This was kind of lost in the headlines. People thought it was the bank of Walmart, right? That they were going to be building just a Chime, a Venmo, a Revolut type app. But that's not it. They, they announced in January this partnership with Ribbit Capital to develop and offer modern, innovative, and affordable financial solutions. Did I just say innovative? I said it the Irish way. Wonderful. But it's funny. I, I took a look at this, right? I took a look at Ribbit Capital. Now, they say it takes money to change money, right? That is their part of their mantra when they're making investments in in early stage fintech. It does take lots of money to change money and lots of money from Walmart, 
right? So I wonder what the deal is like for Walmart to be paying Ribbit Capital. And as I just said, this isn't about building a digital bank. This is a heck of a lot more WeChat than yeah. it is Revolut, yeah. okay? And one of the things about WeChat is that it's all based on these things called mini programs that are running inside a super app. You don't need to download a new app from the app store for each new service yeah. that you want to plug into this. You just you just go, right? And I'm trying to think about Ribbit Capital or only there's 20 some odd faces on their team page, right? There's probably another, I don't know, 30, 40 max that are with Ribbit Capital. They're not going to have the bandwidth to build anything. Will they just be advising? Or if you look at their investments, Affirm, Brex, Chainalysis, Coinbase, Credit Karma, Figure, Revolut, Robinhood, lots of good names, lots of knowledge in-house. That's Do it. you think they're going to farm the development of these mini programs as side gigs to some of the portfolio companies? Definitely, definitely. Like uh, this, this was a really interesting one because I mean, you first think, oh, Walmart, like it's nothing to do with over here. But like I was looking at it earlier, two hundred twenty million customers on a, d- a daily basis go through the door- doors of a Walmart. They've got ten and a half thousand stores globally, but obviously the majority in the US. You know, we're talking again. This comes back to the the Amazon conversations we've had in the past, and Facebook and WhatsApp and so forth. It's just finding further ways to monetize your existing customers. Like people who go to Walmart every day, like they continue coming back. So now it's a case of how many different solutions can we provide them in one place? So within our Walmart app, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head there with the Ribbit Capital piece, you know, their team can't do it, but they clearly have the access to that. Even the list of names you mentioned there, each of those has a specific value add to Walmart. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And the the big news this week on this whole thing with Walmart is that they hired Omer Ishmael and David Stark from Goldman Sachs, who are key players in leading Marcus's growth to more than $97 billion in deposits, right? So one of the articles was suggesting, hey, you five years ago, you started doing this with Goldman to build this savings app and what is now becoming an investing app, at least in the US. You want to go start all over again? and do this for five more years with Walmart. But the big thing is, no, you're doing something so much bigger than Marcus, right? If they can pull this off, the opportunity set that was being referenced. So the super app would include their Shopify marketplace, which is good, wonderful. Connecting the self-service online display ad platform for partners that they bought a couple of years ago, something called Thunder, I think. And this means that if with a fully online experience, you still want to be able to pump up these display ads that people would normally see when they're walking around Walmart, right? So be able to do this in real time, figure out who's on, throw up an ad bid right away, who's going to be the one that takes that user's attention within milliseconds and pops up an ad in their face, right? So that's part of it. Health centers, existing investments in e-commerce, logistics, supply chain, and inventory management to link everything up, right? This on-demand replenishing of products into the warehouse and a bunch of other product and services not currently affiliated with Walmart, right? Which is kind of everything. So if they do this right, this could be massive. It's just, are they going to be able to move quick enough given that it's Walmart? And look, the, the key piece may be the Ribbit Capital relationship. And that could be, it's a case of let's not build it, let's just integrate it. You know, if they can do that, obviously they have the potential then to move quickly enough. Exactly. Like the, the interesting comparison here is with, 
Starbucks. And I always use it. Anytime I do a guest lecture on fintech, I always talk about that heading, everything is a fintech. And I use Starbucks as an example because the last time it was publicly flagged, the amount of, I think it was around this time last year or maybe 18 months ago, at that, in that particular quarter, Starbucks had more customer deposits, if you want to call them that, on their Starbucks cards than most uh, US banks held yeah. in that quarter. So if you take that example of, you know, what would I do with my Walmart card? Well, I'd probably top it up or if, I've to- if I'm topping it up and there's always going to be a consistent balance just sitting there, have I got some sort of investment solution that just does some sort short term thing that earns some money for me? You know, you're looking at a firm is obviously one of the companies there working with Ribbit and they they obviously just announced this week there, which was a really strange announcement in the sense that they announced a debit card for their buy now, pay later solution. So a debit card where you pay buy now and pay later sounds to me like a credit card but anyway it's it been called a debit card but again you could see that i mean even that slotting in immediately as part of your walmart card or whatever your customer card is the opportunity to buy on credit at the checkout in store you know there's multiple options for them and being able to slot in or integrate those solutions could also do a huge amount for some of those underlying companies i can affirm if they start white labeling certain technology solutions that they have or offers that they have oh yeah yeah, and this is going to be API'd up the wazoo, right? I was listening to Sam Hinkie on that podcast episode you sent me, Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And he was saying something like, people don't use software, software uses software, you know, <laughs> and it's just APIs, everything. Yep. And that's where this is all headed. One, one of the things I thought as well, Owen, was thinking about the American culture. And you said 220 million a day, people going through their doors and buying things, whether online or offline. You know, there is a huge concentration folks in middle America and well, all over the country where Walmart is just kind of where you go for everything. When I was visiting my sister and her family out in Reno, Nevada, a few years ago, Walmart was massive. Everything was there. You needed to go buy beer. You went to Walmart. You need to go buy food. You went to Walmart. You needed some new clothes. You went to Walmart, you know? And so they've got that massive customer base. You tried to do that in Europe. You're not going to get too far. Tesco, but that's just UK and Ireland. And with Brexit, even complicating that a bit. The the big one in France, where we Carrefour. used to go to get our wine, Carrefour. Yeah. You know, you're going to do that? No, it's not big enough. There's no cross-border retail. There's no cross-border retail. Some of them will be big enough in a market, like maybe a Carrefour. But how far are they going to go on the product side? Most of these guys offer rewards. So it makes sense if they offered one or two other products, but nothing of the scale of a likes of a Walmart. The reality is it's Amazon who already offer 10 of these products to their prime customers. Like you said, if you have customers that use Walmart for everything, well, them adding one or two more services means they're automatically going to get those customers. Yep, yep, absolutely. Just thinking about who, who could be perhaps a tech player then that could build it in Europe, connecting the dots. I mean, even e-commerce is so fractured here. Amazon is not the biggest player. It's all a bunch of national players that because it's just become so complicated with Amazon that the European outlet, and I was thinking about that today when I was sending my godson a gift card, was uh, is Amazon.co.uk. It's a UK business, right? So it's outside of Europe now. And there's all types of complications being applied on top of that. So people are just looking at other places, you know. But anyway, someone is going to have to find a way to accelerate this a bit in, in Europe because we're kind of on the fringes here. You know, no WeChat in the U.S., well, Walmart are going to do it. What, what's going to happen in Europe? Speaking of accelerating, other things that I thought were worth mentioning here in Ireland, yep. the applications are now open for NDRC's new accelerator. The NDRC is the National Digital Research Center. Dogpatch Labs, who have been a 
big startup hub for the last, geez, it's been five years now nearly, maybe closer to six years here in Dublin, run by Patrick Walsh, who's CEO of Dog Patch Labs, but also the NDRC. They won that government contract. Shout out to Patrick. And the new accelerator that they're running, what they announced just recently was that, one, it's a nationwide accelerator. It's not just going to be run out of Dog Patch Labs in Dublin. It's also being run out of the RDI hub in Kerry, the Republic of Work in Cork, and the Portershed in Galway, where Pippet are based, good friends of the show. Shout out to Ollie Walsh and his family. They are a great bunch. The other part of the big announcement is that they're making 100,000 euro investments through a SAFE, a simple agreement for future equity. And Owen, I know you and I had talked about the SAFE a couple of times in different topics, and we'll leave it at that over the last few years. The SAFE, and it's uncapped on the valuation with a 20% discount on the valuation. So that is the first national accelerator in Ireland that is making that scale and size of investments, which is going to be pretty fantastic, fantastic for the sector. As part of the program, there are 40 entrepreneurial mentors. I applied, but didn't get a call back. (laughs) Just so everyone knows, I haven't heard back from Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z either on their Bitcoin trust board. So we'll... You know, I'm not going to be waiting for that. But the accelerator has two phases over a six-month period from the 21st of June through September's Demo Day program capper. Applications are open until Sunday, the 2nd of May. So worth taking a look at if you're a startup. Now, accelerators are different from pre-accelerators. There's another one. So Startup Boost. This is run by Gene Murphy and his co-founder, Blake Caldwell. Right, shout out to Gene. He is a friend of the show as well. He was on episode 94, only video cast. If you remember, how could we forget? And their spring cohort has their applications, which will close on Monday, March 22nd. Now, it's really interesting, this interplay between accelerators and pre-accelerators, right? Accelerators, I think just taking the Techstars metric, and Techstars are a big global accelerator, they say that 70% of the startups that go through their program get funded, right? Which is a very positive stat. And the whole idea of a pre-accelerator is to get you into those accelerators, right? So I don't know what startup boost metrics are, but you know, let's say it's okay, 70% of the graduates get into an accelerator, right? And then 70% of the accelerator get into a VC funding situation, right? So some good stories there. The programs that Startup Boost are running, as I mentioned, there is an Irish cohort, but the one that they are accepting applications for now, all running remotely, obviously, they're based in Detroit, Kenya, LA, Pittsburgh, Toronto, UK, and Vancouver with new programs launching in South Florida and Washington, DC, right? So they're scaling this big time, which is great to see. The third one I wanted to mention was Expert Dojo. We had Brian McMahon on the show back. He was episode 108. They have their applications open for their next cohort kicking off on the 5th of April. Their tagline is investing in international companies looking to take over the world, right? So it's kind of the unicorn camp, right? You are not a unicorn yet. We got got to get you there. And they are later stage than Startup Boost. And to kind of contrast them with NDRC and Dogpatch Labs, Expert Dojo is based in Southern California, and they're connected with all the top U.S. startup investors, right? So that's a little bit of a different story. Expert Dojo 
based in California, entry point at the US market connected with investors. So a little bit of a different story there for the two of them. And then Startup Boost obviously being a pre-accelerator, which is you know one stage before that. But lots of good stuff going on there. Expert Dojo obviously run by Brian McMahon, who's a native Irishman in Santa Monica, California. He was, like I said, he was on episode 108. I am sourcing Irish investments for them. So get in touch if you've got the potential to hit that magic number of $10 million monthly recurring revenue. So we got a few more there, yep. but there's a lot. Looking at some of these, Owen, is there any that you want to pick? The, the, the one I thought was interesting, there was a couple of things in relation to Square. They had some big announcements over the last couple of weeks. And actually, I picked up on a tweet from Pascal, our friend Pascal Bouvier in Middle Game. Shout out to Pascal. It was specifically around their acquisition of Tidal, which is a music streaming service owned by Jay-Z. And obviously, Jay-Z came on board then, which was just fantastic anyway but the really interesting thing was you know around there was a lot of noise in the market or as in oh it didn't seem like a good move my view on it i think it's focusing on the creators you know and the opportunity with our title obviously allowed artists to make money and to control their own rights and control how their music is distributed it gave them a lot of ownership on it and to me the, the opportunity then going through a process of acquiring the likes of title is that it gives Square the opportunity then to provide financial services or product partnerships or whatever with the creators who then obviously have that massive distribution network to their fans. So I actually thought for what was, I think, $300 million, it probably seemed like fairly low price in the scheme of things when you think about the potential wider hundreds of millions of fans that they have potential access then through the creators that they're partnering with and i'm sure there's a load of different product lines that could be rolled out in terms of working with some of the artists so i actually thought like i said i thought for 300 million dollars i think they're getting a good deal given the potential opportunity with it oh yeah no i saw that too and i mean do you you think that there's going to be some okay you you have a mechanism there for artists to get paid you have square that makes it easier for people to send and receive money is there going to be just sharing of pipes and plumbing do you think and that the square technology will become more of an enabler for a better title outcome for artists getting paid or do you think it might go the other way as well if you look at some of the other things that are out like there's only fans and cameo and i suppose other products that are in the market that allow celebrities and artists to monetize themselves this brings it all under one roof how does the artist take advantage of the access to square you know there's more immediately through their sales and their distribution and the ticket ownership and the ticket revenue and stuff like that square doing a huge amount with bitcoin and cash app and you talked about nfts there and tokens so there's probably further development jack made it very clear he really wants to support the creator economy and that's really broad. He's going after the celebrities and the, the, the high-profile ones at the start. If we look at the different segments of the market that you could argue are underserved, there isn't really a, a digital bank for the creator economy on the basis that they don't fit the normal type of bank customer. If you drill down to the smaller artists and musicians, yeah. you know maybe there's a bigger play there. So maybe this ends up being the bank of choice for artists and musicians and creators. It's a, Yeah, it's enabling people to get paid. Right, it's the royalties. As soon as the song gets played, you get you get a few pennies dropped into your Cash App account, right? Cash App, I saw today, are looking for a general manager for the UK. Pretty cool. I saw that as well. <laughs> oh, it's Dublin too. Yeah. No, no, it's based out of Dublin actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, that popped up. Like, so that hmm. that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, big story. More and more. Geez, there's so many that are coming over. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Whether it's U.S. companies moving in. UK companies already there that are moving over to Ireland. It's just en fuego right now. So I just thought that was an interesting one. Given in a similar vein as the uh, Roblox example, whereby it's just uh, you know there's a way to potentially monetize 
within a particular service or whatever. And it's just yeah. a completely different approach to banking financial services than that's what typically out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, with Jack Dorsey at the steering wheel here and his love of Bitcoin, he, you got to imagine his love. He's got enough love to go around a few more tokens, right? Yeah. Especially, yeah. like you said, the non-fungible type, the NFTs. We saw Kings of Leon just on Friday put out their new record as an NFT, right? And, you know, uh, the valuations around these things are going a bit lula right now, but I think it's just early days exuberance that is driving some of this. It will settle down, but it is a legitimate way for an artist to get paid. Every single time that token changes hands, you've got a little bit of a cut going back to the artist, right? That's it, because I mean, typically, I saw some interview with Ed Sheeran a couple of years ago, and he talked about how he's made all his money by doing his big stadium tours. Like he has to because he doesn't get much of a cut necessarily from the record sales. Whereas this could potentially be a direct way, like you said, to get your royalties from the songs being played, your direct sales of your tickets so that you're getting the majority of the fee as the artist. The guys providing the ticket sales or whoever, Ticketmaster, are getting a cut of it, but actually you're collecting the rest. And it's very straightforward, the flow through and the process and everything is very transparent. So yeah, no, I, I think it could be a really interesting space to watch. Yep, yep, I think so. One other thing I wanted to mention, this was, again, the Sam Hinkie stuff. The Sam Hinkie article you put into the newsletter, Owen, was just brilliant. And I, I knew about him, and I, I had been following the 76ers. And like I said, when I was writing it, like, you know, I'd always been pa- more than a passing interest. But I think our shared interest in innovation, but in, in, in areas you don't expect it. I read it a couple of times. I included it in the newsletter. His his resignation letter is genuinely fantastic insight into his business philosophy and his mindset around long-term innovation. And it's a really interesting article for people to read and understand. And the way he goes about explaining it and the long-term process, like I just, I, I couldn't believe as I got deeper and deeper into it, I was like, you know, this is actually incredible view and approach to take to it. And it's a shared view with Buffett and Charlie Munger and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And I just thought it was fascinating. And then obviously I, I came across it interview that I sent on to you with Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Invest Like the Best. And the more and more I read about him and everything, you know, the more I was like, this guy's a fascinating business mind, the way he approaches it. So I was really hoping, and he hasn't as of yet replied to my tweet where I mentioned him in the newsletter. So I'm hoping maybe the shout out on the show will give us the reason to, for me to tweet at him and get him on the show. Yeah, yeah. I will, we will definitely put the podcast link in the show notes. And what I liked the best coming out of that was Patrick O'Shaughnessy asked him, what did you bring from business into basketball and what did you bring from basketball into business? I forget what the first one was, but the second one was it's the power law rule, right? That he brought from basketball back into business was that something ridiculous such as 10 years in a row when LeBron wasn't hurt, his team went to the finals, right? That the best player can drive things. He told a story about acquiring James Harden as a 22-year-old and getting yeah. everybody to tuck in their shirts, right? Okay, yeah. new dog in town, yeah. right? And that you can take some of this superstar mentality and apply it into the startup world, right? Absolutely. Now, you need a team, right? You absolutely need a team, but I have seen such the big difference that charismatic leaders make in startup land. It's absolutely crazy. One of the other things he mentioned was, and this was uh, the JP Morgan poking and prodding story around they killed Chase Pay, right? And that Sam Hinkie mentioned something about a fictitious 10-person startup where the big boss comes in and says, we need to build new payment infrastructure. And one of the guys pipes up and said, have you been to Townsend Avenue in San Francisco? And I love the fact that it's Townsend Avenue. Do you know these guys called Stripe? They're kind of building all this stuff. 
So it's kind of like Jamie Dimon when you signed off on Chase Pay before you killed it last week. But when you originally signed off on it, had you not been downtown 10 Avenue in San Francisco and seen what Stripe were doing? Right. And then also today, uh, as a reversal, a Jamie Dimon reverse triple backflip that JP Morgan are launching a cryptocurrency exposure basket of Bitcoin proxy stocks. Right. So thanks to my friends in the crypto club out in Asia Pack. One of them who goes by the pseudonym CryptoBaz, they put me onto one of their signal groups just uh, after CryptoBaz and I had a, what do you call it? We, we had a, a virtual rendezvous in Talking Crypto on Sunday of all days. My kids weren't very happy about that, but he's an old friend from Bermuda. So I, I, I went ahead with that. I don't think he wants me to share his real name because he is trading during the day. So, But it's just a time zone difference thing. Anyway, so Jamie's you know, flatulations uh, a couple of years ago around Bitcoin being a Ponzi scheme and all that type of stuff. So I guess there is something to this cryptocurrency thing after all, Jamie, is there? It must be. And I only really give him a hard time. Obviously, he's built incredible business. He's heading up an incredible business. He says a lot of things, but, you know, due respect to the guy. The only reason I poke fun at him is I think he's prepping for a run for president in the US, but we'll see. And apparently there's a similar announcement coming from BlackRock around what they're doing around crypto as well. So anyway. Fun stuff. Thank you, Jamie Diamond. Anywho, anything else that was tickling your brain today? No, no, that's kind of it. That's all of the stuff I've been looking at at the moment. Got some really interesting projects, clients that I'm working with at the moment. I've seen some really interesting stuff in the e-commerce space. Amazing growth, like an absolutely ridiculous growth out of some out of a company I've, started, I've been working with recently in the e-commerce space. Couldn't believe it in the nine months that they're in operation. But the more we're looking at, I suppose collectively, the super app model, I'm trying to take that piece and apply it to some of the clients I'm working with, saying very much from a point of view of, you know, the more smaller players that I'm meeting, it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I have another client whereby if they were to take a bigger picture in terms of the wider product or service they want to offer to their customers, maybe you two guys should have a chat because you could slot into the other one you know, as part of their ecosystem. And so spending a lot of time thinking about things as an ecosystem at the moment, trying to get people to think about, you know, their business model at the moment like that. Absolutely. NFX came up with a new definition of some gateway marketplace or something like that. Enterprise gateway marketplace is being a new definition of startup, right? Which to me feels like ecosystem. I'm aware of three new marketplace ecosystem digital stores that have an Irish story as part of their business that are landing in Ireland in the coming months. Everything's coming at us from so many different directions here. It's wonderful. Glad I started this five years ago, you know? Yeah, definitely. All right, pal. We'll cut it there tonight. That's it. Enjoy. Have a good one. You too. Adios. That does it for this week, folks. And you can learn more about the stories we covered in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online and subscribe to our weekly Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm the founding partner in Norio Ventures, and I'm an early stage startup advisor and investor focused on fintech and digital assets. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a voicemail on moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya.